Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Just before we start this podcast, just a quick explanation that for this episode, we're going to split it into two parts. So this first part of the role of imagery in support of open source intelligence will play now, and then we'll invite you back to join us for the second part very shortly. Hello, and welcome to this edition of World of Intelligence at Jane's. As usual, Harry Kemsey, your host, and my co-host, Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi. So, Sean, like you, I have been watching events around um, the crisis in Ukraine and seen a huge amount of open source material. But amongst all that, we've seen a lot of commercial imagery, a lot of geospatial intelligence coming through. So I thought today we might spend a bit of time looking at geospatial intelligence within the open source environment. Now, if any of the listeners have been anywhere close to geospatial intelligence in the recent years, they will come to know the name Robert Cardillo. And I am absolutely delighted to introduce Robert. Hello, Robert. Good morning. Greetings. Good morning. How are you? Fantastic. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Robert Cardillo is the president of the Cardillo Group, founded in May 2019, delivering strategic consultation services dedicated to the growth and development of the intelligence profession. Robert is engaged in numerous non-profit services and holds a range of board and advisory board positions with organizations across the defense and national security spectrum. He's the only person to lead the analytical operations at four different organizations in the US intelligence community. In reverse chronological order, until February 2019, he was the sixth director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NGA, leading the transformation of the agency's future value proposition through innovative partnerships with the growing commercial geospatial industry. Prior to that, within the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI, serving as the first Deputy Director for Intelligence Integration from 2010 to 2014, Robert managed and delivered the President's daily brief to President Obama and Vice President Biden, and was a member of the Deputies Committee of the National Security Council. From 2006 to 2010, Robert served as the Deputy Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, and the Deputy Director for Analysis of the same agency. In 2009, he served as the Acting J2 Intelligence Lead, which was a first for a civilian, in support of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen. Robert's distinguished service has been recognized at the very highest levels. In addition to an honorary doctorate of humane letters from St. Louis University, Robert has been awarded the Presidential Rank of Distinguished Executive twice, the Presidential Rank of Meritorious Executive, the Director of National Intelligence Distinguished Service Medal twice, the Secretary of Defense Distinguished Service Medal also twice, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Joint Meritorious Civilian Service Award. So Robert, from that bio, it'll be very clear to the listeners that didn't know you, your incredible knowledge and understanding and experience in geospatial intelligence. Perhaps I can get you started by asking, how did you get into geospatial intelligence in the first place? Um, 
happy to. And Harry, Sean, it's very good to be with you and with your audience here today. I know we're going to have a little bit of fun and hopefully uh, Absolutely. Uh, nudge the needle ahead with respect to uh, uh, advancing our overall profession and contributing to uh, decision makers and, and, and better outcomes for all of us. Um, but there, I have a short answer of how I got involved in this prof- profession. It is by accident, okay? But of course, I've got a longer answer that's uh, that's a little bit more uh, interesting. Um, I, I, you know, coming out of out of university, I I knew that I wanted to serve somehow. I came from a service-based family with with my father in the military and my brother, and but uh, but the uniform didn't appear to be the right fit for me, so. I applied to the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, in the early 80s. Okay, so that's you now dated your uh, guest today. Uh, mm-hmm. Ronald Ronald Reagan was in his first term of office. He was rebuilding uh, U.S. defense, uh, as you'll recall. And I ended up putting my name in at the right time and place because the Defense Intelligence Agency was uh, had decided that they were building all of these uh, highly classified uh, imaging satellites, but they didn't have enough humans uh, to exploit the result, the collected imagery of said satellites. So they said, oh, well, we uh, we, we might want to go find some more, uh, what they called in those days, photographic interpreters. And so Robert was in the right place at the right time. Um, I was a warm body. I you know, could put two and two together, and they welcomed me in. Had no background, right? I didn't study, you know, remote sensing or geography in school. Uh, uh, so, uh, not only was it a bit of an accident, I I got lucky, and I understand that. Um, but what a ride I began! So, first of all, Harry, in those days when I was welcomed into the profession, uh, I walked into a dark room. Uh, usually in the basement of a building with no windows. And uh, I had a badge around my neck that told people that I had a top secret clearance. And then I would, of course, go through my training and my education to be able to extract information from imagery. And we can talk more about that as as we go on. Yeah. But once I could create value, uh, this is how the process worked. Uh, somebody with a, another pr- human – oh, and by the way, I apologize to my British colleagues. The other human usually had to be a U.S. person uh, with a top-secret clearance, and they would ask me a top-secret question. I would task a top-secret satellite. I would get back a top-secret image. I would put it on a semi-secret light table. So now I'm looking through a microscope. It said top-secret image, and I'm employing my craft. Right. I'm extracting information from that. I would finish the extraction. I would turn to a very antiquated top secret computer. (laughs) It would wait for it to warm up. I would wait for it to please stop blinking and let me enter my, you know, characters into the green screen. Uh, I would hit complete and there I would have my record. Okay. At this Soviet base on this day, Robert counted this many, you know, you know, gas trucks and uh, and, uh, you know, uh, T-60 tanks and et cetera, et cetera, whatever the object of the realm was. Um, I, I say that to you just to frame the audience. That it, yes, that's 40 years ago, but it's it's only 40 years ago. So two generations ago, everything that we're about to talk about on this podcast w- was only possible in those basements, in those you know <laughs> windowless offices with everybody you know wearing a top secret clearance. And so talk about a very closed world. Now, 
it, 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 I described that for two reasons. One, um, as closed as it was, I would argue it was enormously valuable to U.S. Right. and allied security because it was very, very difficult to do what I just described. I mean, and enormously expensive. I mean, one, access to space, obviously. We had the space race with Sputnik and the Apollo missions and whatnot. And yes, were the Soviets putting cameras in space as well? If, yes, they were. But but our our attempt and interest was to put better cameras and, and, and have those. And by the way, those cameras in the early days were literally cameras, which would eject yeah. film. I don't know how many of your audience will know what film is, but that's the, it's a hard copy record of, of, a, <laughs> of a light source uh, interacting with uh, a piece of plastic that has the right chemicals on it. I know I just sound a thousand years old now. Um, <laughs> but I, again, I, I, I marvel at what we're able to do to eject that film, uh, you know, at 25,000 miles per hour in space, have the film fall through uh, our atmosphere, have it uh, deploy a parachute and be caught over the Pacific Ocean by Air Force plane with a trapeze behind it. it. I mean, it sounds absolutely James Bond incredible. And I would argue it is. It, and, and, and so we should pay great tribute to those pioneers, right, that created that ability to sense our planet from space. Right. Um, it, we have come a long way. And I'm now going to fast forward and turn it over to Sean to bring us up to speed with respect to, you know, how we how we think about and how we define this thing, geospatial intelligence. But I'll finish with for your audience. It really is all about sensing the world in a way that makes it safer. So whether that's for navigation, whether that's for transportation, whether that's for simple assuredness of my security of where I am and and when I am. Um, uh, but obviously, because of the importance of location and, and, and having that sense of security, uh, the profession has grown to the term now uh, geospatial intelligence. Sean. Sean, geospatial intelligence. Oxford English Dictionary, go. Thanks for that, Robert. It was a trip down memory lane, and our, our backgrounds are extremely similar. And I was going to ask, weren't you, also, weren't you also a photographic interpreter exactly the same time? I joined, joined the military as a photographic interpreter, and it was only much later that, A, we had the intelligence bands, but we actually changed to imagery analysts. And then, of course, finally, the geospatial intelligence piece came in. But I do very much remember, you know, the going into the dark rooms with the photographers and splooshing, as we used to call it, saying, right, can you just enlarge that particular tank, whatever. So and, and it, you know, whilst I'm even older than all the rest of you, it's not that long ago, actually. But just just bringing, you know, for um, just bring us up to, to speed on terms of the terminology. So we've gone from photograph interpretation to imagery analysis and now the term is geospatial intelligence and you know if you want a formal definition it's it's effectively the ex exploitation analysis of imagery and geospatial information to do the usual describe analyze assess and, and visually de depict physical features and geographically re reference activities on the earth everything is somewhere and so being able to situate it if you like in terms of where it is and what that means is the way forward. So there's three elements to do and the imagery itself. And we'll probably talk about the vast different types of imagery now. There's the imagery intelligence, the interpretation of what you're seeing on the image, and then the, the overlaying of the geospatial information is bringing them all together is what makes GeoInt. Right. Well, let me um, let me get us started then. 
you used the word closed quite a few times in your introduction, Robert. And now, of course, we're talking about open source information. And I think one of the big things that's changed in the last 40 years is how much of what used to be the exclusive domain of the government, the exquisite capabilities of government, were the only ones that really had imagery, certainly from outside Earth looking in. Today, of course, that's less true. We can come back later to talk about whether that's actually going to be sustainable. But how much of what you used to do that was entirely closed and top secret is now open? Is it all of it or just still a subset of it from your estimation, Robert? Um, it's a good question, and I'm going to, you know, take a risk and put some numbers uh, to my answer, some percentages. But please know these are, you know, just gut uh, reactions. Um, I was an analyst from like '83 to '93, so you know, th up into through the collapse of the Soviet Union into the early uh, era of of truly unipolar world uh, of the '90s. And the beginning of more of non-traditional analytic efforts, special operations, counterterrorism. Yeah. Of course, terrorism in in Robert's day was shipjacking and hijacking. Um, yeah. You know, different hostage taking, different, but still same threat to our society. Um, I would say easily in my early days, especially when I was doing Soviet analysis. A hundred, a hundred percent was coming from government sources, classified yeah. sources. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I, I just decided to take a footnote there on my own. Um, of course, I used maps and charts, right, to baseline and contextualize my analysis, and so those were unclassified and shareable, sure. and and those were derived from, you know, open sources as well. So maybe I would go to one, two, or three percent. Uh, there instead of just a hundred, but 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 I will tell you my mentality was if I'm going to provide value, if I'm going to give advantage to the person that's going to read my report, it's going to come from that classified yeah. source. Yeah. I had no no inkling that I was going to get anything of value that wasn't yeah. classified. Yeah. Um, I ran NGA as director from 14 to 19, so that's more recent. Uh, last 10 years. And uh, again, by the way, Harry, we can go back. I've just jumped over 25 years, but um, <laughs> it's okay. We're on a I'm just giving you the, you know, my sense of where the analytic frame of mind was when I was director. You know, it's a big agency with thousands of analysts, and I'm now going to generalize. So, you know, this this is a you know homogenization of a lot of efforts. But, I, you know, I, I would say that there were some parts of the of the analytic organization. Certainly, the the team that would work humanitarian issues and disaster relief and, right. and recovery and uh, you know climate monitoring, preponderance of their work was open. Um, you know, whether it was U.S. commercial imagery, whether it was national imagery coming from places like NASA or from uh, uh, Europe, um, uh, Sentinel missions. Uh, and and let's face it, um, you know, we were introducing more and more airborne collection uh, throughout sure. the time period. And, you know, generally speaking, um, say if the, the old rule was it was in space, it was top secret. If it was a U.S. Or, or an allied plane, military plane in altitude, air breathing, uh, okay, secret or collateral, right? Uh, but even then, it was much easier to make it uh, releasable and unclassified. And then, um, so, 
easily those types of accounts, the majority could be uh, open source. But if I went back and, you know, if I visited my China shop at NGA and they're tracking Chinese mobile missile, you know, deployments mm -hmm. and yeah. exercises yeah. and whatnot, they would, they would be using now, you know, our partners at Maxar and, and now Black Sky and Planet as 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 baseline the way I would use it as baseline as maps, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't differential and we should come back and talk about why that is. Uh, there's still a heavy bias and that's the right word. It's a bias that I think needs to be disrupted. And again, we can yeah. talk more about that um, yeah. for not just government but classified the. Unfortunately, in the minds of, of my colleagues and some of my colleagues of my you know, class are still you know, uh, exploiting information today, there is an unfortunate belief, and I say unfortunate, it, it, it's reality, but it's, it's, it's carried forward for too long. The, and this belief is this, the higher the classification, the more the value. Yeah. You know, yeah. my, my source is top secret. Your source is only secret, so mine's yeah. better than yours. Right. And 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 yes, it sounds silly. It is silly, but it's there, yeah. and uh, and it is a problem to deal with. And so I think one of the challenges that we've had to have commercial fully and I said commercial open fully embraced. There is a unfortunately that that lingering bias. How could yeah. anything unclassified? Be useful yeah. to me. And Sean and I have certainly talked about that before, haven't we, Sean, where we talked about the lack of engagement with the open source environment. And by the way, um, Robert, we talk about open source. We capture in there the publicly available and the commercially available. It's, it's what's out there outside of government, if you will. And we've certainly talked about that, Sean, in the past, haven't we, about the the lack of engagement. I don't think it's as bad as it would have been 30 years ago or maybe even 20 years ago. It's getting better, but there is still not a full engagement, is there, Sean, in terms of uh, what's available and what could be used from the open source environment? No, we're not there yet. And, and that's for, for several reasons. One of the major ones is which, again, we've talked about before, cultural, of course. But uh, in, in answer to that original question, and, and this will come to, to answer that as well, in terms of, you know, uh, what you can use in the open source, I'd go back to the way that Robert characterize it and go it's in comparative terms so that stuff that we were both looking at um, you know in the deep dark recesses of top secret buildings um, many years ago in the 80s you know I would have you fast forward today you know at highly classified levels that nobody can see you fast forward today and some of the capabilities are astonishingly good in comparative terms and that's the way I would do it. So, you know, not comparing light with light today, but some of the, you know, 30 centimeter plus color images, the development is great. And of course, it's all about what you're going to use it for. So, you know, we've got we've got so much now in terms of the data. The key we might and we probably should definitely come on to this is that knowing where to look, knowing why you're looking there knowing what you're looking at, and we might definitely go around this one because not everybody can be an in, in, imaging analyst, in my humble opinion, I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, and, and then, you know, what is the problem set that you are trying to resolve? So that answers the piece about why the interaction isn't there. There's a, 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 and I will use the word paranoia, which I think is, you know, a little bit strong, but a paranoia saying that we do not want to reveal our intelligence gaps. Therefore, we're not going to take tell you in the open source what we're interested in or why we're interested in it. Now, you can actually obfuscate and you can hide that, to be fair. And, and I really do think you can. 
But there is a reality there. Of course, people don't want to do that, particularly in the imagery side where, you know, all these satellites going around the world are, are being monitored very closely. So, you know, those people who we might be interested in know exactly when a certain pass is going to be. And I'm talking about commercial satellite imagery, of course, here. Let me just uh, let me just pick up on um, something you said as well, Robert. You talked about that foundational contextual understanding you got very early on from maps that would give you some sort of context. And then you talked about how commercial imagery has become that foundation. Do you see a time when what's foundational actually becomes more actionable? It's much more directly going to be part of your product at the end of it. And just to pick up on the point Sean made there about the resolution that's available now and the incredible image you can get from commercial sources probably being better than some of the stuff you saw at the very early stages of your career from government and exquisite then exquisite sources. Do you see that 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 trend continuing to the point where actually you don't need government satellites to do what commercial satellites are now doing um your last sentence set off a chill uh harry because <laughs> why I asked it. well it, it, look uh, you know when i came back to nga i grew up there went went away to defense intelligence agency went down to the joint staff did my white house assignment uh, for President Obama, and really came back to an agency that had been away from for 10 years. And I I was quite worried as a, well, I was excited, obviously, to be able to be the director of the agency where I was once the most junior employee. So that's quite a gift, right, to be able to have both ends of those experiences. But I also, it, and, and Harry, I, trust me, I'm going to circle back to your question, but I, I, I was I was worried about what I thought was a a false and somewhat dangerous comfort at NGA in 2014. And it went this way. It was basically, and you can think of a lot of industries that have had this challenge. We were successful yesterday. That was the mentality, right? We, we applied the tradecraft. We we ex we had exquisite access to space. We had we had the best sensing technology in the world, and and we, and we won, right? We we or or we overcame or we provided advantage, and we'll just do that tomorrow. And if we need to pedal faster or try harder, we'll do that, right? But it was that's what I thought was the risk because everything you just said, Harry, about the the the, the what I call the growing transparency of our planet, yep. meaning. There's the sensing is almost continuous, which, by the way, Sean can help us on this whole. What do you mean you're looking over here? Well, everyone's looking everywhere. So that's that's a noisy environment and it's yeah. easier to cover. Oh, I'm really interested in that spot there, but I don't have to let anyone know because there's so much sensing going on. Um, so I tried uh, and I'm sure the jury's out a bit uh, at NGA and maybe they'll write history books someday uh, about how well I did. I tried to disrupt that comfort. Um, now, I intended to do it constructively, right? So the disruption would lead to advancement and, <laughs> and, and, you know, and look, it's a 10,000 person organization. Did some people run to the corner and hide and wait till I, you know, had my ceremony that, you know, had my turnover? Of course they did. <laughs> and are they still there? Of course they are. Uh, but, but by you the way, I don't No, 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 no. And I was just going to say, I actually don't think that they're bad people or, or, or somehow working, you know, against our security interests. They just saw me as a risk. Uh, me, me because that openness right was gonna was going to water down was going to diminish the special value that they 
had been become comfortable with. Right. And, and I thought just the opposite. I said, look, this isn't about elimination. It's about elevation. It's about taking all of this now open sensing. And by the way, the term I use is unprotected data because there's protected data in many different forms. But if you can just access that unprotected data, the the, 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 the base foundation that I started my work on, right, that, yep. that one to 200,000 scale map of the Transcaucasus military district, okay, is enormously enriched now, right? You, you're starting at a much higher information right. point. It is a little scary to these analysts because, you know, wait a minute, if everybody knows that why do you need me where's my value right where's that's my value? right but yeah. this goes to your question about do we still need government sensing my answer is adamantly yes it should be i'm going to say smaller by the way smaller doesn't mean less expensive <laughs> our government and <laughs> assets continue to be yeah. quite expensive Indeed. and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't mean smaller is less important. In many ways, let's say we go to a world where 95% of the source of an NGA analyst is open all right okay great all right. They've now they're really at a very high point of information and awareness about their their target or their topic. Um, that five percent that comes from an exquisite, classified, compartmented access that is really far edge of science or of space, you know, access. Great. Um, but but that's the problem. You know, when when I did my analysis, you know, again, a million years ago. I would finish with my classified work and sprinkle commercial on top, you know, right. literally just sprinkle it on top and go, oh, look at that. Look at me. I've, I've done my commercial bit for the day. Mm -hmm. That has to be so fundamentally flipped. Right. And 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 again, I I, I worry because I don't believe we've changed the tradecraft uh, development and education courses this way. I would. You know, if it, uh, and I was king four years ago, so I, you, you could ask me next, why didn't you do this? But, uh, you know, I think we should take new entrants into and, and boy, I think you could almost keep them outside of the skiff, so the classified environment for a good six months right. <laughs> and, and, and just have them completely absorb, you know, what the, that open has. And then bring them in much later. And then, you know, because I, I want them to think about their tradecraft that way. Yeah. You know, how can I share openly and, and what, what unique can I apply on top of that? Yeah, we've, we've certainly spoken, Sean, haven't we, recent times about maybe Ukraine has um, made us start to realize that the open source environment has come of age. We've certainly talked about the shareability aspect of open source being a real advantage in certain respects when you're working with non-traditional allies but let's just go to this this point though sean from your perspective because you've got as much experience as anybody in this conversation certainly more than me in the geospatial where the room for the value add for the analyst is becoming compressed i mean robert you just talked about five percent is that compression going to continue are we going to get to the stage where the analysts who are working in the classified environment that bit they're adding on top is getting smaller and smaller is there actually a chance the second part of the question they get overtaken by what's available in open source and they should start to feel as though they're falling behind what they could get. The exquisite just doesn't give them any advantage. Do you see that as a trend that could end up? Um, I mean, that's a big question. Again, probably another one for a whole podcast, but I, I would address it in terms of context about the whole of the intelligence integration piece, because I do, I do feel that there is a place still for this specialist imagery analyst. I really, really believe that. And, you know, I've seen that myself. Everyone's familiar. Well, so certain people in the West are familiar with the certain viewpoint 
of of the world taken from you know taken from the air if you like or or, or satellites and and so you know it's not difficult to say that's a tank or something else but taking the context of you know the fact is there are these vehicles and there's a couple of signature equipment here you know they are in this position which means that they may be you know about to do something the the uh, other layers of the intelligence you still need a specialist now whether it's an open source specialist or a classified specialist um, and it goes back to robert was saying you know that 10 percent, which i think is absolutely firmly the space that the intelligence community should be looking at that's where you can add you know you can take all the foundational pieces but that's where you say right this is this is the the absolute key piece of information that we can only get from classified means okay that's what adds a value there okay so robert in terms of um the world of intelligence that you've come from let's go let's go back to the vault inside the skiff the world in there has become the the floor the foundation has got higher i've got less to go and find out for myself i'm now adding that five to ten percent on top to to sprinkle on the commercial not the commercial the exquisite to make it just what i need it to be how much of that last five or ten percent could be brought in from the commercial sector but we choose not to are we excluding it because we really can't afford to bring them in it's just not safe to do so or is it just not available yet i'm talking specifically the geospatial world are we excluding yeah. stuff or are we just not it's just not available out there what we need yeah no i understand here i first need to clarify um it isn't 90 percent commercial inside the skiff now it just right. isn't okay it's like i said Parts of the building, yes, maybe, depending on the account. Okay. Parts are probably 50-50. I question. would say if, if you went back into the China shop, I think it's still predominantly national technical means, which means government-owned, right. yeah. government-operated, government-classified. Um, and if I could add one thing to, to Sean's good comment about the, the tradecraft piece, um, I – look, uh, I just came out of the uh, – uh, Oak Ridge did a trillion-pixel challenge. And it's just another, you know, computer vision. You know, how how quickly can we process information or these supercomputers and whatnot? And uh, again, interestingly enough, uh, I work with you know a company that that collects the imagery called Planet, and I'm now working with a small uh, AI startup called Synthetic, and they did some interesting work on tracking that Chinese balloon back through to Hainan, you know, over time yeah. through the archive, and. Uh, and when they found out about the challenge, they said, oh, well, we used 18 trillion pixels to do that. Why are, Why is the government simply doing one trillion? You know, it's just I just yeah. love the story that, you know, our government is trying hard, right, to be hip and happening. And, you know, universities and students are going, boy, these these guys are old. Um, OK, now I I need to make some calls and apologize to my good, good friends at Oak Ridge. Um, but. Uh, it's back to, so back to your point, I, I think there's something else we need to bring up here. I talked about the right. inhibitor, about the bias of yeah. of classification. There is also a bias, and and it's not again just like classification isn't crazy. This one isn't either, and this one is control. Um, okay, so here you're a government official. You're responsible for a national security you know mission, right? Your lives are at stake. Okay, if if you do or don't do your job. Uh, and I come into you and I have some commercial offering for you and you're going to go, OK, I'm going to sign a contract with this company. And that contract's going to say that they're going to send me these things and they're going to assure me that none of their uh, pixels or their ones and zeros have been manipulated or or 
in, in any way affected. Um, there's going to be clauses in that contract that talk about, you know, payments and about assuredness and about cybersecurity. Uh, it sounds risky to me, Robert. I really, I really can't put my mission at that kind of risk. Right. Okay. So that's, that isn't a crazy thought. You obviously do want assuredness, right? You do want, uh, and there are many, many, there's a good portion of, of, of senior leaders in government who, who will at least resist, if not reject commercial for just that reason. Right. I, I, I can't, I can't, be, I can't be confident one that they'll be there when I need them. Right. That, that they'll be responsive to my, you know, I have to have this in 10 seconds, not 10 minutes. And look, they live out in the wild. I mean, it's, uh, I feel, I feel uncomfortable enough with my cybersecurity here in this skiff. And you're going to tell me that company in downtown San Francisco, you know, that, you know, yeah. lives on the street, you know, you know, is in the open is, is going to not be affected by yeah. a, an adversary as capable of China or Russia. Are you kidding me? So we okay. need to, we need to bring that into the equation, um, uh, Harry, uh, as well. Um, I, I, by the way, I think it's eminently addressable. Obviously nothing in life is assured, right? I and mean, by the way, that goes for government and commercial. But yeah. what, what I like to take my friends who bring it up, I said, look, I get it. And you should absolutely build in every protection you can into that exchange or that contract. But don't kid yourself, right? A one and a zero can be a zero and a one in a millisecond inside your skiffer out. And so we're going to have to figure out how to you know, close this circle in a way that we can confidently move forward. OK, we'll take a short break there. That's the end of part one on the podcast discussing the role of imagery in support of open source intelligence. Please do join us for part two, where Robert, Sean and I will continue to discuss the geospatial collaboration between private and public sectors. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. 